2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today, Amy Willens will be in to talk about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Ivanka, we are told, is responsible for Trump launching missiles against that air base of Assad's in Syria. And Jared seems to be replacing Steve Bannon as the key person in the Trump White House. Bannon called him, quote, a Democrat. Could that be True. Also, we'll look at where we stand on voting rights now that Neil Gorsuch has joined the Supreme Court. Ari Berman will review the situation. But first, Tom Frank. He's been on the road in Trump land, touring red states, to talk about the new paperback edition of his book, Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People? Tom is the author of several books, including the classic What's the Matter with Kansas? He's been a columnist for The Wall Street Journal and Harper's and a contributor to The New York Times and The Nation. Tom, welcome back.
3: John, great to be here.
2: Well, you wrote Listen Liberal before the 2016 election. In it, you argued that the Democrats had detached themselves from their historic constituency, ordinary working-class Americans. Your recent tour took you through the red states, you went to Pittsburgh, you went to Cleveland, you went to Columbus, you went to Indianapolis.
3: If you want to talk about lessons that I learned from touring Trump land, you know, you know what the, the biggest one is? What's the biggest lesson? People really hated Hillary Clinton to a degree that even I, with my cynicism, my jadedness, that I did not understand. Hmm. You know, I... Did not hate Hillary Clinton. I voted for her, and I and I agreed with Obama that she was the most qualified. You know, she's very qualified. She deserved to be president. Uh, all all of these things. I thought she would have. She. I didn't think she'd be a great president, but I thought she'd be okay. Certainly, certainly better than Donald Trump. But what I discovered is I drove her, and and I. But I knew how to hate Donald Trump. That's easy. Yeah. I mean, like, Tate boasts about groping women. He, you know, says these evil things about Mexicans and mocks the handicapped. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff this guy did and said so hating him was easy what i did not understand was the degree to which people really hated hillary clinton and and that's ultimately what this election was it's like which one do you hate more and And why 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 you've been to piss that's that's the question that's the question what is it about her i mean because she's not offensive she doesn't say uh, uh rude things she tries so hard to not offend people i mean she did make that remark about the deplorables I think it is the uh, it's the very things that you and I like about Hillary are, uh, you know, that she is so professional and she is so polished and she's such a wonderful lawyer. And she was, you know, whatever, uh, went to Yale Law School and was so brilliant and was the best in her class and all these things people hate this. They hate it. They hate what she represents, this kind of scolding liberalism that's always, you know, it's better than you. You know, Hillary is so saintly. This, this is one of the – remember what the chapter about Hillary and Listen, Liberal, where yeah. I talked about her, her goodness and her righteousness, and I kind of made fun of her for it. What I didn't really understand is that, to me, that's sort of um, mockable, you know, like the stuff that she does with the Clinton Foundation and, you know, all, all the sort of uh, uh, righteousness signaling that Democrats like to do, that, that people like her like to do. People hate that stuff, hate it. To, just to double down on this a little bit, John, people running the Democratic campaign had no idea. They had no idea. And the Democrats, the Republicans kept Trump at arm's length all through the uh, campaign. They, they knew that this guy was toxic. OK, the Democrats did not do that with Hillary Clinton. They loved her without reservation. And not just them, the media, the press, the uh, newspaper columnists, they, they could not imagine someone better than Hillary Clinton being you know, a nominee for president. There's a real sort of Shakespearean tragedy to, to all this. Summarize for us your, your
2: case against the party of Hillary Clinton.
3: Well, it's, it's that, that liberalism has basically, it's not what you think it is. It's not a philosophy of, of working class people anymore. It's not a party that really cares too much about the uh, condition or the state of the middle class. It's a party that is attached to a different group. Um, then that's the sort of uh, affluent white-collar professionals uh, who share a, simil- a certain uh, class perspective on the world. It's, it's, a, it's a story of social class, just not the social class everyone thinks of when they think of the Democratic Party. It's, it's a pretty affluent, uh, well-to-do group that they care very deeply about, and they share their worldview. And, and by the way, I voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was the perfect embodiment of, of what I am talking about that's, that's wrong with the Democratic Party.
2: So in your new afterword to the paperback of Listen Liberal, you remind us that the Democrats did have a choice in the primaries. On the one hand, there was the most qualified person ever to run for office who would make history by becoming (laughs) the first woman president. On the other, there was a 74-year-old Jewish socialist from Vermont you called him. <laughs>
3: I know, You I know. called and, him a, and he's the, and he's the electable one. <laughs> you
2: called him a living symbol of what the Democrats used to stand for.
3: So why didn't Bernie win? I think that uh, Hillary beat him. I'm one, I'm not one of these people that thinks that um, that uh, that she won the uh, the nomination by cheating. Her side did cheat. There's no doubt about that. The Democratic National Committee did cheat, but she also won fair and square. And uh, why did Bernie lose the Democratic primaries? You know, first of all, he was a totally unknown quantity when those primaries started. Today, he's very well known. Today, people know all about him and they sort of wish he was president. You know, But at the time, nobody knew who he was. Uh, he was an unknown quantity. And I think most damaging of all, he wasn't a Democrat. This is a man that never... Uh, You know, all those years in Congress never signed up with the Democratic Party. He voted with them most of the time and he caucused with them, but he never really joined the party. And so party insiders, people who vote in Democratic primaries, um, Democratic elected officials, there's no way they're going to support a guy like that. And here's Hillary, who has been promising these people things for decades now. She is their uh, sort of ideal candidate, you know.
2: Didn't the fact that the Democrats had adopted most of Bernie's issues at their convention have any impact on on these places?
3: No, zero. They didn't even know that. Now, uh, Bernie. By the way, Bernie Sanders is this is a, another thing I learned. Remarkably popular politician. Remarkably popular. Uh, this is a man that uh, has very few scandals. I mean, I don't think he has any. I can't think of any. I think a lot of people regard him as a reassuring figure, as a comforting figure, because he reminds them of uh, Democrats of old. Yeah, You know, he talks like a sort of Harry Truman kind of Democrat. And uh, there's something I I was in a a union hall in Indianapolis. By the way, this is the uh, union, the local that represents those workers at the carrier plant. You know, Trump made such a big deal out of this in the in the uh, in the election. I was in there. i was in their, i spoke in their union hall by the way, one of my better nights it was a lot of it was a lot of fun there's a, these are people where the rank and file by and large went for trump you know mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or uh, a lot of them went went for an un, unprecedented uh number percentage of them went for donald trump because he was talking about not just their issues but their lives on on the campaign trail and um all over this union hall are pictures of Bernie Sanders. They love this man. They love this man. And it's like you, you, you see that and suddenly, you know, you figure something out. Like when people say, well, would Bernie have been able to beat Donald Trump? The answer is hell yes, because these are the voters that defected, that left the Democratic Party and voted for Trump. They love Sanders. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he would have beat uh, Trump. Yes. Hell yes.
2: So I've I've gone back into the dusty archives of the New York Times magazine and back in, in May of twenty sixteen I found a headline Thomas Frank thinks Hillary should woo the working class. And then I
3: <laughs> Yeah, I did. I then, did say that. Yeah. Then I went into yeah. the
2: dusty archives of the Washington Post and found the headline Nominating Sanders would be insane. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you have any
3: comment on this. Yeah. Hey, John, at some point, I mean, it's like at some point, every cliche is true. These people live in a bubble and they are totally disconnected from the life of this nation. And they just don't have any idea. I mean, the Washington Post, you know, they just don't have any. They don't have the faintest idea. Now, look, I understand why they'd say that. It's exactly what you said at the start. Bernie Sanders, you know, a uh, a Jewish socialist from Vermont. With and let's never forget with that crazy accent he has, uh, and, <laughs> you know, and and to and to 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 tell the Washington Post that that man is more electable than Hillary Clinton, they look at you like you're crazy, you know.
2: <laughs> that that and, accent, uh, let, uh, let me just say, that accent is a Brooklyn accent. That is a, 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 I know, I know. a noble I a him, noble like, accent.
3: The first time I heard him, I thought, is that what a Vermont accent sounds like? Because <laughs> no. I didn't know, right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, now now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. You were in the Twin Cities last week. Minnesota, of course, unlike Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, is a blue state. It voted for Hillary. It has a Democratic governor. It has two Democratic senators. Amy Klobuchar and yeah. Al Franklin. Minneapolis is represented in Congress by Keith Ellison, an African-American, the first Muslim elected to Congress. Minea- yeah, Minneapolis a great man, by the way. Minneapolis is These married. are
3: all people that I admire, every single one of them. And
2: Minneapolis, I, I always like to point out, Minneapolis is represented in the state legislature now by Ilhan Omar, the first Somali refugee to be elected to statewide office in the United States. Hillary got about 70% of the vote in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, how did things go for you uh, in, in Minnesota?
3: Well, look, I'm selling, I'm selling a book, John. Things went really well. <laughs> Minneapolis is one of these places that, that they, the Twin Cities, they read books there. Yeah. I mean, they read a lot of books there. And, and there's a lot of liberals there. There's a lot of people on the left there. So it's, it's an ideal city for me, and I always do well there. The, the problem with... What I do for living with, um, you know, with 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 trying to get ideas across via books is that's not really who I was trying to reach this time around. Yeah, I'm trying to reach people up in like the Iron Range. The, the real story in Minnesota is not uh, people in the Twin Cities who remain very democratic. It's the uh, uh, it's the uh, miners and the farmers and the people in small towns. Uh, you know, the, the, the party there, by the way, is called the Democratic Farmer. Labor Party and the farmers and the laborers, those are the people you got to worry about, and yeah. they are yeah. defecting, they are going to Trump, even in Minnesota.
2: Well, the media ha- have been trying to explain uh, what motivates Trump's followers, and of course, we've learned that they were ignorant racists who hated immigrants, but but you say. Uh, In the new paperback edition of Listen Liberal, you say Trump spoke about some entirely legitimate issues, especially what you call the one big grievance in capital letters. What was the one big grievance?
3: Uh, It's the the slow disintegration of the middle class. You and I are on the left, John. We talk about this all the time. Uh, And we think it's our issue. I mean, Obama talked about it all the time. And we think we own this issue. And here's Trump. Trump did uh, a much better job speaking to people's anger over this than than Hillary did much, much, much better uh, because he he got you know, he has a very colorful style. So, by the way, I don't want to downplay uh, Trump's bigotry. Trump is a bigot. I, I always state this very openly and frankly right at the beginning of any talk I give about this guy. He's he's a, the, the things he said on the campaign trail are utterly unacceptable, and he should, uh, he should, you know, in any other year, a, a guy who said things like that would be disqualified, would, would lose automatically. That said, Trump did talk about the, uh, the issue of the disintegrating middle class, and the, and the way that he talked about it was by, uh, by talking about, about trade, people's uh, grievance about NAFTA and about, uh, you know, the other, the other trade agreements, and this really worked against Hillary Clinton because, of course, her name is Clinton. She's married to the man that gave us NAFTA. Yeah. She's the secretary of state that helped to um, uh, negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership. By the way, I wrote about this um, in March of 2016, a big article in The Guardian, probably one of the articles that has had the most readers of anything I've ever written. The Democrats completely blew it off, didn't pay any attention. You know, I said in that article, look at what Trump is talking about. Don't just say... Oh, he's a bigot and a racist, and therefore all his followers are bigots and racists. Listen to what he's saying. He's actually talking about something real here. You better do something about it. And there's that comment of mine to the New York Times. Hillary better, you know, figure out some way to reach out to working class voters. They didn't didn't pay any attention. They didn't listen. The liberals didn't listen, John.
2: Tom Frank, his book, Listen Liberal, is out now in paperback with a new afterword. Tom, it's always great to have you on the show.
3: Yep, it is fun, John. That's right.
2: Now it's time for Ivanka Watch. And for that, we turn once again to Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. The London papers have been reporting that Ivanka is responsible for Donald Trump's strike at Syria last week. They say this helps explain why Trump did the opposite in Syria from what he talked about during the campaign. According to her own tweets, Ivanka was moved by the photos of suffering Syrian children. What do you think of those reports?
4: Well, I don't think that's the proper way to conduct military business, just to begin with. I mean, I don't think anyone would. You don't just get advice from an an unelected advisor, even though now she's a West Wing advisor. And go ahead and, and use bombs without Congress. So he consults with his daughter, but not with Congress and then does what she says. No. And and I don't believe it. But it did raise the possibility for me of what would happen if I were Donald Trump's daughter. Okay. So then he would be bombing Rwanda, Liberia, Uganda, the Sudan, the presidential palaces, mind you, not the not the actual people, the Kremlin, Pyongyang. Oh, and who Who in the world, what major government is not responsible for the deaths of children? P.S. The Syrian government has used chemical warfare before on its own people when Donald Trump was saying he would not bomb Syria. So a couple of photographs changed that policy. A tender-hearted daughter. I believe that the Trump administration... Uh, wants to bring uh, Ivanka to the fore and that she's responsible for a large part of the Trump administration's popularity with people under the age of 40.
2: Uh, let's talk about her husband, Jared Kushner, who's, oh, let's. who's been in the news a lot lately, mostly for his power struggle with Steve Bannon. What was it that Steve Bannon called him? He called him a Democrat. And could that be true?
4: Yeah, it's kind of true. He sort of is a Democrat. He's given to a lot of Democratic causes, except now.
2: Except now. Jared has been in the news so much, he took a trip to Iraq. Why?
4: A general invited him to come, and he said yes. It's probably because Jared is now, as I call him, secretary of everything. He has so many jobs, so many hats that he's wearing. It's more than a seasoned foreign policy official could possibly deal with. Mexico is on his agenda dealing with the wall, His uh, agenda includes uh, making peace in the Middle East, something a series of presidents have been unable to do. He's also responsible for streamlining the government in a business style, uh, as uh, his family business and the Trump family business have been so successful at doing. So uh, he's got a lot going on, and I guess Iraq is now part of that uh, bailiwick. I think you left out the
2: visit of the Chinese president, which... Uh, Jared apparently helped plan, including that dinner that preceded the official meetings. Uh, The dinner was remarkable in some ways.
4: Well, Mar-a-Lago is remarkable in many, many ways. And uh, the the fact that Donald Trump is bringing in foreign dignitaries to have state dinners at a resort that he owns is uh, a shocking ethical conflict of interest.
2: And then there was the musical uh, introduction to the evening.
4: The musical interlude. This is when Jared really made his presence felt. Um, His little daughter, Arabella, whom I judge to be about eight. I think she's only five. Only five. She's very, very adorable, as all the children are. And she has been, I think, taking Mandarin. And she sang what sounded to an American ear like, Oh, My Darling Clementine, but apparently is the Happy New Year song in Chinese for President Xi and his wife.
2: And this was uh, made available to us on on video, I believe.
4: Ivanka tweeted it.
2: Ivanka tweeted it. And what was it like? You watched it. She's so
4: cute. It was great. If I were she, I would now be definitely a close ally of the United States <laughs> based on that. But this is, again, it's the use of Ivanka as the softening element and the her huge popularity to just bring people in.
2: You mentioned briefly that you thought there was a conflict of interest uh, in inviting Xi to Mar-a-Lago. The conflicts of interest only begin with Mar-a-Lago. Jared and Ivanka seem to, in many ways, define conflict of interest in the Trump uh, administration.
4: I think they are the nexus of corruption in this administration. They're worth... Over uh, $700 million, and that is including only businesses with which they still have some connection. It's not, those are not things they've removed themselves from. Many of the uh, investors in those amounts are not even named in the documents they've filed with the White House Ethics Committee. And uh, so we don't even know who's exercising power over these people. And We can't find out. And let's talk about
2: the single biggest holding of the Kushner Companies, which had been headed by Jared before he went to work for the White House, 666 Fifth Avenue. This is a fascinating story. Uh, Jared's first big move as head of the Kushner Companies was when he paid the highest price in the history of Manhattan real estate for a single building 666 Fifth Avenue, he paid $1.8 billion in 2007. And you may remember what happened just a year later in September of 2008. The real estate market of Manhattan and everywhere else in the w- world collapsed. And 666 Fifth Avenue has been in a shaky financial state ever since then, including the news in the last week or two.
4: But, and then he was trying to, um, Put together a deal with a a company called Anbang, which is closely related to a bunch of families in the government in China to uh, somehow co-own the aptly named 666 Fifth Avenue. This also fell apart very recently.
2: It fell apart only because the media suggested that there was a conflict of interest. It might be a conflict of interest. Between borrowing money from a Chinese bank to save the family's biggest single real estate holding and
4: and being an assistant to the president,
2: let's go back to the what is reported as the power struggle inside the White House between Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner. I think the idea the the idea here uh, in the mainstream media is that Ivanka and Jared are normal, rational, calm people. And Steve Bannon is a fascist maniac, and therefore it is a good thing that Bannon is in conflict, Jared.
4: Right. To me, it is a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. Whatever causes conflict in the Trump administration is a good thing. Whatever alienates Trump's supporters from Trump is a good thing. And I think a removal of Steve Bannon would be very harsh for for Trump's base to deal with. Um, And these kind of sleek, fake liberals coming in, Jared and, and Ivanka, would also be hard for the base. But I think to put it in those kind of stark, these are your good guys, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, and, and that Bannon is your bad guy, it, you know, the mainstream media has to be kidding itself. These people are Trump's creations. Well, Ivanka is certainly Trump's creation. And she does what he says. That You can look at it as a battle for Trump's soul. Maybe. But I I think he's gonna go with what's best for his presidency and more important for his reelection.
2: You say Ivanka and Jared always get FaceTime with the president, of course there's some other Trump sons in the picture too.
4: Yeah, Eric Eric Trump uh just said the other day, he he gave a beautiful quote. He said that nepotism is a beautiful thing. Oh boy. And he said the reason he gave for The Trump kids have argued this all over the place. Nepotism is wonderful. I got where I am because I'm great, but I also had special access. But what he said is nepotism is a beautiful thing because you can always speak truth to power. But I say, in fact, the children of very, very rich men are very unlikely to speak truth to that power because that power can say, oh, all right, you want to be a hippie and live on an island off the coast of Washington State? Fine, you're out of the will.
2: You're you're very critical of Trump uh, using Mar-a-Lago for official events, but didn't the Kennedys have Hyannis Port, and didn't other presidents have uh, private retreats where they entertained?
4: Yes, but they weren't paying clubs, first of all. They weren't a business enterprise. So... Uh, Uh, Kathleen Clark, who is a government ethics specialist, she said when President Trump arranges to meet a foreign leader at one of his branded properties like Mar-a-Lago, what he is doing is he is actually using government office for private gain. More than that, it made me think about Trump as a human being. Like, does he even have a normal private extra house like all these other rich men who've been president, like Kennedy's Hyannisport, as you said?
2: You mean one that, that doesn't look like Versailles?
4: One that doesn't look like Versailles, first of all, which is not that American, but also one that uh, no one has to pay to visit. Like he's used to having an extra house with paying customers, whereas those people were used to having their friends over. But I believe that when Donald Trump was interviewed about his friendship group a long time ago for one of the early books, he said, well, I don't have any friends. Uh, he doesn't read any books. He doesn't have any friends. So why would he have... Uh, a second house for his vacations. Never, because he doesn't have any friends to invite. He only has paying guests.
2: Amy Willens wrote the cover story on Ivanka Trump for The Nation magazine a couple of issues ago. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about voting rights, where we stand now. For that, we turn to Ari Berman. He's a senior contributing writer for The Nation magazine and a fellow at The Nation Institute. His award-winning book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, is out now in paperback. Uh, Ari Berman, welcome back. Thank you. With everything going on in Trump land, sometimes it's hard to focus on the fundamental issues and voting rights is certainly fundamental. We want to talk about where we stand with voting rights at this point, where the battles are, what challenges we face, how we can prepare for the 2018 midterm elections. The Democrats need to win, I think it's 24 seats in order to retake control of the house that's the plan but in order to do that democrats have to be able to vote we know the republican strategy for a while now has been vote suppression democratic victories depend on voter turnout jeff sessions is our attorney general uh, what has he done since taking office about
5: voting rights So I think it's important first to note that Jeff Sessions has a very long record of opposition to voting rights, which makes him quite unique as an attorney general. We've never had someone who became attorney general and had previously prosecuted civil rights activists for voter fraud, which Jeff Sessions uh, did back when he was a U.S. attorney in Alabama in the 1980s. 80s. He's someone who said that the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 was good news uh, for the South. Uh, When he was nominated as Attorney General, he was asked uh, to refute Donald Trump's lie that three to five million people voted illegally. And Jeff Sessions said, "I don't know how many people voted illegally," (laughs) which was not exactly a a very clear refutation of what Trump said. And one of the first things that that Sessions has done. As Attorney General has been to reverse the Justice Department's position in the Texas voter ID case and argued that that law was not intentionally discriminatory, which was very, very significant because if Texas's voter ID law is found to be intentionally discriminatory, and there was just a trial over this in February, then Texas may have to once again approve its voting changes with the federal government. So this was just the first thing that Sessions has done, and it was kind of forced upon him because uh, the court was going to have a hearing, but I'm fully expecting there will be uh, lots of bad positions uh, taken by the Justice Department on voting rights and on many other issues uh, going forward under Sessions. Well,
2: Texas has been one of the worst states in trying to limit voter rights. Of course, it's by no means the only one. Where are the other uh, battlefronts right now?
5: So just stepping back a little bit, uh, 21 states since the 2010 election have passed new restrictions on voting, whether it's voter ID laws, or cutting back on early voting, or shutting down polling places, or purging the voting rolls. And you know this has happened across the country in important swing states like Florida and Ohio uh, and Wisconsin, and then in sort of redder states like Texas. And 14 of these new restrictions were in effect for the first time in 2016. And we saw a depressed turnout in places like Wisconsin and North Carolina Because of this. Uh, Now we're in a situation in 2017, uh, some of those states are still pushing forward with new restrictions and other states are getting in on the game. Uh, So uh, right now, there are 78 bills to restrict voting rights in 21 states. Uh, And A few states have already passed new measures. Arkansas just passed a voter ID law. Uh, They had tried to pass a similar law in 2014, but it was struck down by the state Supreme Court as unconstitutional. Now they're trying again. Uh, Iowa, which is under Republican control, has passed legislation uh, to uh, require ID uh, also uh, to cut early voting, to eliminate straight ticket voting. So that's a state that has previously not done these kind of things that, that went for Obama twice and now went for Trump in, in 2016. So that's another place I'm looking at. But there's a bunch of bills in, in a number of different states. That's just at the state level. And of course, the dynamic that's now different is there's also a different regime federally. So before you had the Obama administration who was fighting back on this stuff. You had, it, at the very least, divided control of Congress. So Congress was out of the game. Uh, now you have Republicans in Washington who are supporting these state efforts. And, and that's what's new and disturbing here.
2: Well, I know the ACLU and other voting rights groups and projects are challenging a lot of these restrictions in court. Some are succeeding. A lot of them are not succeeding. But there's also a a parallel effort to help voters get the ID they need. What can you tell us about this effort? And is it going to make sufficient
5: progress between now and 2018? I think there's been a few different ways on on which these efforts to suppress the vote have been combated. As you mentioned, there have been a lot of lawsuits filed. Uh, The ACLU and other groups have had some success in places like Texas and North Carolina. Those cases, though, remain unsettled because a lot of them are on appeal. A lot of them are on appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court has deadlocked four to four in a lot of these cases. so Neil Gorsuch could be the deciding vote to uh, make sure that voting restrictions in North Carolina and Texas and other places are allowed to go into effect, which I think would be catastrophic for voting rights in those states. Uh, At the same time, there are 100 federal court vacancies that Donald Trump is going to begin to fill. So when you're talking about court of appeals, district court decisions, those could go another way. So that's why the judiciary is really, really important here. And I'm really concerned about what might happen under Trump. There are efforts underway uh, by groups like Vote Writers, by Project Vote, and others to try to help people get the IDs they need. I observe these efforts up close in states like Wisconsin, where they had organizers on the ground. They did a good job, but it's very, very difficult work. I mean, the people who, for example, might not have the the, the right voter ID, uh, these are often uh, people from under served communities, people at the lower end of the economic ladder, and they need a lot of help. Uh, this sometimes requires multiple trips to the DMVs, you have situations where People don't have birth certificates or they have errors on their birth certificates, and it's very, very difficult uh, to get the documentation. So uh, this can be extremely time-consuming work. Uh, It's really important organizing, but when people say, well, let's just get everyone the ID, I mean, it's not nearly as simple as you think for those people that don't have it. And that's just one component of of this problem. So I think we need to see a lot more attention and a lot more funding for this work going forward.
2: And of course, while voter ID has gotten probably the most attention. There's also been the changes in polling place, the reduced number of polling places for minority communities, student communities. Uh, Where do we stand on those tactics?
5: Those tactics are ongoing, and, and that's what I always try to bring attention to, is it's not just voter ID, because a lot of people are hung up on this idea that everyone has the ID, and you need it for all this other stuff, and what's the big deal? And yeah. you know, I've pushed back on that in a lot of different ways, talking about how not everyone has the ID, and the laws are written in such a way like in Texas, where you can vote with a gun permit but not a student ID. So clearly seems like there's some other motives here. But even if you accept that voter ID is necessary, then you still have to think about, why would you cut early voting, which is very popular among party lines, or why would you close polling places? Which which nobody uh, wants to do, or uh, why would you purge the voting rolls without notifying people in advance? That kind of stuff is also uh, going on here, uh, and, and and these efforts are are ongoing, and a lot of times we don't have advance notice of them, uh, and the you know there's a number of of states. In 2018 and in 2020, that are going to be competitive, that are going to have these efforts uh, going forward. So uh, it's not just voter ID; I think it's really, really important uh, to look at. That's what always gets the headline, but there's a lot of other things going on here.
2: You mentioned Neil Gorsuch. I assume we we should expect the worst, but are there any clues to that in his record?
5: I think both his record and his testimony uh, was very disturbing. Basically, he's a guy who has been uh, pretty much down the line, conservative on most issues. Often, sometimes really extreme in his decisions. Like one of the decisions that got a lot of attention when during his confirmation hearings was about this truck case where a a driver uh, had a situation where his brakes weren't working, and he had to pull over to the side of the road, and there were sub-zero temperatures, and he fell asleep, and he was freezing, and he decided uh, that he was going to leave part of his truck behind and, and go seek some sort of relief and some sort of shelter, and he was fired by his employer for this. And uh, every judge who heard this, both at the district court and at the appeals court level, ruled in favor of this trucker, except for Neil Gorsuch. And Gorsuch was saying, well, I was sympathetic to the trucker, but the law was the law, and I had no choice but to rule for his employer. And I think this is the kind of thing that Gorsuch has done over and over again, where you know he tries to appear reasonable, he tries to appear empathetic, but the fact is where he's coming down in these cases, he's consistently coming down for big corporations, he's consistently coming down on behalf of of the religious right, he's consistently coming down in a way uh, that's antithetical um, to progressive values, and he was very, very uh, dismissive at his hearing about answering any sort of questions. I thought he was uh, quite arrogant uh, in terms of how he portrayed himself. He, he at times, tried to portray himself like John Roberts, like John Roberts famously said he was just an umpire, he was just going to call balls and strikes. We know that that's not the case, that John Roberts has been a very reactionary judge writing the decision to gut the Voting Rights Act, uh, writing decisions or agreeing with decisions on things like Citizens United, on Hobby Lobby, on Heller, on all of these cases, has dramatically pushed the court uh, to the right on most issues. Uh, So I think that Gorsuch will be in that mold. There are people that believe that he will be more radical than Roberts, more like Scalia, more willing to uh, undo precedent. And the fact that he seems reasonable to me makes him more dangerous. People th- are thinking they're going to get a fair shot from him when he's in fact uh, very, very ideological.
2: Ari Berman, read him at the nation.com. Ari, thanks for talking
5: with us today. Thanks, John. Good to see you.
2: After we taped that interview, a U.S. District Court judge ruled that Texas passed its 2011 voter ID law with the intent to discriminate against minority voters. This is a big victory for voting rights groups and a big loss for Jeff Sessions and the Trump Justice Department, who had reversed the Obama administration's position that the law was intentionally discriminatory. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, Hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, so even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday. Now at thenation.com/slash-edge-of-sports. <laughs> start making sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels.